in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 8, but uh, we're going to consider this uh, whole original paragraph as part of the background. For those of you that uh, missed last Sunday, we're in the second of a five-part series. Last week was the Eternal Son. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at what it meant for him to leave the throne in heaven. And then next week we're going to talk about entering the womb. And then being born as a servant. And finally, uh, being tempted and tested in every aspect just as we are. As we look at this passage this morning, um, I, I want you to be aware, you may not be, that this passage is surrounded by a great deal of controversy. There are many different ideas on what it means for Jesus to empty himself, uh, or to uh, set aside or render <coughs> uh, void his... Um, divine attributes, as it were, and to humble himself and take the form of a servant. And like many doctrinal points, particularly those that deal with the person of God, it doesn't take but a little bit of error to eventually take us a long way from the truth. We've all studied geometry you know what a tangent is. It's a line that touches a circle at only one point. And when you move the next point, which is an a infinitesimally small theoretical concept, but when you move the next point away, you're further away from that circle that's moving away from each other. And if you continue down that path long enough, you're going to be a long way from the circle. And if we consider the circle to be the core of absolute truth, a tangent may not look significant at the point of convergence, but it will down the road take you a long way away from the absolute truth. And this is particularly important because if we fail to understand what it meant for Jesus to leave His heavenly throne and come to this earth taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of human beings, if we do not understand that, we're going to live our lives excusing ourselves for our failure to live up to the standard of holiness that God has put before us. Because we're going to simply say, it's not possible for me, a mere mortal. And so, uh, I, I want you to keep that in mind. It's going to sound like at times this morning, I'm talking about picky points. And I am talking about picky points. But they're not insignificant points. They're very significant because they have to do with keeping us uh, close to and in the center of biblical truth. 
Now, just uh, for the record, on the back of your study guide this morning, I copied the introductory paragraphs from a web article by a gentleman named Charles Bunsen. And uh, he is writing on Bible.org an article entitled The Empty God, A Biblical and Theological Answer to the False Doctrine of Kenosis. And, by the way, the word kenosis is that Greek word for the word empty, to empty himself. And uh, he writes an article about that. And uh, I will tell you quite honestly, I don't agree with him. But even in his article, I find that it takes some discernment to read through it because the wording is not sufficiently precise. And at times, he is exactly right. And at times, he is exactly wrong. Because it's important to pay attention to the words that we use. Well, first of all, let's consider the context of this important Christological passage. You know, the Bible is not written as a book of theology. The Bible is a very practical guide that the Holy Spirit inspired <coughs> for churches uh, and people and whatever who were facing very real problems. And the Philippian church... Uh, I had a couple of people in it that were having trouble getting along with one another. Not nearly as far out as the Corinthians, but uh, they had some people that were having struggles together. And so Paul in chapter 2 um, begins to encourage them and admonish them that if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, that's Philippians 2.1, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul is actually admonishing them to love one another unselfishly. To look out for one another. To put one another uh, and, and one another's interests ahead of their own. His motivation is really not to give us a, a definition of Christology in the Incarnation. His motivation is to encourage us to follow the example of Jesus. And when you do a study of the, the most frequently used word in the New Testament for love, which is agape, you learn that that word means to do what is needed for another person regardless of the personal cost or what it costs you. Genuine, 
godly love for one another means that I will do for you whatever you need to have done, no matter what it costs me personally. That I will consider your need more important than my need. That I will put you ahead of myself. And that I will give you a a position of, of primacy or significance that is beyond my own personal agenda. And so Paul naturally thinks of Jesus when he encourages them to live this way. He automatically thinks of Jesus who willingly left His Father's throne and all the glory of heaven and came to earth to be born of a woman, to be born in a, a, a sheep stall, to be laid in a feeding trough, to take on the shape of a man and the clothing of the flesh of a man and to go to the cross even to die on that cross that He might pay the price for my sin. That is the ultimate sacrifice of God's love for me. That is the epitome of selflessness. That Jesus was willing to leave the heavenly position and come to this lowly place that He might save me because that's what I needed. And He didn't have to do it, but He was willing to do it. And so, uh, this is the example Paul selects. Uh, he, he reminds us of the price that Jesus made. And He exhorts us to follow His example. I want to suggest to you that that very illustration is significant in and of itself. Because when Paul says, have the attitude in yourself that Jesus had when He left the Father's throne and came to earth, He is telling us that it is possible to think and to act like Jesus. Did you get that? That's really, really important. It is possible for us to think and to act like Jesus. We cannot say, well, of course He could do that. He's God. But I can't do that. I'm just a mere mortal. And that's precisely what Paul is saying to the opposite. Oh, yes, you can do it. Because you have the same empowering equipment that he had when he did it. You have the same Spirit living inside of you who can empower you to obey the Father in loving others no matter what it costs. 
you are able to do that in Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at what the passage itself says in verses 5 to 8 and consider them uh, in a little bit of detail. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let's look at these verses and consider what they are saying and the implications of what they're saying. First of all, it says, He existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. These words state in unequivocal terms that the Messiah existed prior to the Incarnation in the very same form as God the Father and God the Spirit. That He was one with God the Holy Trinity. That He was completely in the same form. You say, what form is that? I don't know. God is a Spirit. (laughs) He doesn't have a body like we have. But He does have personality and and uh, definition and existence, and uh, he's very real, even though he's non-corporeal, without a body. But Jesus existed in the identically same form. Secondly, he was in every way equal to the Father and to the Spirit. Look at what he says. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't view it as stealing a title to say, I am equal with the Father. He could say, I am equal to the Father. And it was not something that he stole. It was who he was, who he is. And so, we recognize from this, these statements that to exist in the very form of God and to be equal with God can only mean that He is God. You cannot have the form of God and equality with God and not be God. So, to support last week's study on the Eternal Son, we are reminded again that Jesus Christ is fully God. And that even though he was fully God, he did not feel the need to cling to that title, that reality, that presence of being in the Holy Trinity, in essence as God. Pick my words carefully here now. For the purpose of human redemption, (coughs) he willingly emptied himself in the interest of taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
In other words, he took upon himself the form of one who was subservient or obedient to the Father in every respect. And he took upon himself a human body. And friends, he did not merely occupy that body for 33 or so years. He took that body upon himself for the rest of eternity. He has eternally identified with us in our humanity. And so, when we hold forth and when I hold forth the encouragement to be like Jesus, I am not encouraging you to usurp the place of God. I am encouraging you to be like Jesus the man who lived in the power of God in such a way that he always did the Father's will. And so it's important to recognize that he took on this human body and made himself subservient to the will of the Father and became obedient even to going to the cross. Do you remember the one prayer where Jesus struggled intense, intensely was in the garden. That we get a, a window into his struggling over this issue and saying, Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any, if there's any other possibility, if there's any way, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I desire, but your will be done. Jesus was saying, my humanity shrinks from the horrors that I'm about to face, but I am willing to obey you no matter what it costs. I will go to the cross. That's, that's an amazing commitment and sacrifice that He made for us. So, what does it actually mean for the Son to empty Himself? What is this idea of this canonic theory of the emptying? Well, first of all, let me state very clearly what it does not mean. Jesus, our Messiah, never for an instant ceased to be in any way the eternal God. Where uh, Bunton rightly uh, targets those who teach the kenosis theory wrongly in suggesting that they in some way imply that Jesus gave up His deity to come to earth, He is right on target. Because Jesus never gave up His deity. 
nor did he give up any attributes of his deity. He retained his full deity as the eternal Son. And when he walked about on this earth, he was fully and completely and totally divine. Never did he surrender his divine nature or any of its attributes in terms of giving them up. If I give up my next cough drop to Tom, I don't have it anymore. Tom has it. He owns it. And I'm without it. And unless he's willing to give it back to me, in a few minutes I'm going to be in trouble. (laughs) Jesus did not give up his deity. So, the emptying does not mean that. This is important, folks. This is important. (laughs) The Council of Chalcedon in the early 400s AD met for this very purpose to sort out the, the deity and humanity of Christ and they came up with what theologians call the doctrine of the hypostatic union But it's the mystery of the fact that He is fully God and fully man simultaneously. There's no mixing. There's no admixture. uh, There's no confusion. There's no loss of one to gain the other. He is fully God and fully man simultaneously. It's important that we keep that. Because many of the early heresies surrounded who, who is Jesus. What it does mean is that while he did not give up any of his deity or divine attributes, he voluntarily set them aside and chose not to use them in any way to smooth his journey as a human being. By the way, let me back up because I just saw my notes here. (coughs) That... Uh, there are two occasions in his uh, travels upon the earth that, that his deity was at least glimpsed. They still didn't get the full picture. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Peter, um, James, and John got some sense of his glory on that Mount of Transfiguration. And do you remember when the, when the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden? And he said, whom do you seek? And they said, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell on the ground. There's a reason why his divinity was manifest in that moment. And they were powerless before Almighty God. Because Jesus wanted to make clear that He voluntarily went to the cross. 
They didn't take him. He went with them. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't even stand in his presence until he was willing to submit to the Father's will and go with them. That's important stuff. But those are the only two times that I can think of that Jesus ever manifested his deity while on earth. And then immediately, people come back and say, now wait a minute, he raised the dead. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He saw Nathaniel sitting under a tree long before he ever got near him. Um, How do you explain those things? Friends, Jesus said, and we kind of have to put all this together a little bit, this last point, but Jesus said, the things that I have done, you will do also in greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father, and I will give you my Spirit. I challenge you. Here's, here's an assignment that you can take over the Christmas holidays. I challenge you. Find something that Jesus did that His disciples did not also do after He left the earth. Did they cast out demons? Yes, they did. Did they raise the dead? Yes, they did. Did they heal the sick? Yes, they did. Did they walk on water? Well, I don't recall that, but I do recall Philip being transported in the spirits, like Scotty beamed me up. It was teleported to another place like that without having to travel there. Because, like Jesus, he defied the natural elements in the power of the Spirit. Did they know things that they had no way of knowing? Yes. Peter said, Why, uh, Ananias, has Satan filled your heart to lie to the, the Holy Spirit? For you have not lied to men, but to God. How did Peter know that Ananias had kept back part of the, the, the price of the land? Because... By the word of knowledge, the Holy Spirit revealed it to Peter. All the spiritual gifts, there aren't any of them that are not supernatural, by the way. They're all supernatural. Some people talk about the sign gifts, tongues and healing and stuff like that. No, they're all supernatural. The word of knowledge is not your smart. It means God tells you things you have no other way of knowing. You can't get it out of a textbook. The word of wisdom doesn't mean you're, you're like wise like Solomon. It means God gives you guidance and discernment like His own. With a word of wisdom. Every spiritual gift is a manifestation of some action of Jesus Christ that filled by the same Spirit, we can do the same things. And so it's important that we we understand that. 
that Jesus never acted on this planet out of His deity, but always out of His Spirit-empowered humanity. It was necessary for Him to be a valid example. So what does it mean? I'm a little ahead of myself here, but now we'll look at it. While He did not give up any of His divinity or divine attributes, He voluntarily set them aside, chose not to use them in any way to smooth His journey as a human being, choosing instead to live as a natural human being fully dependent upon the indwelling and empowering Spirit of God to enable Him to resist sin and to perform the Father's will. Listen, friends, when the Scripture says there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, and with every temptation, with every temptation, with every temptation, God will make a way of escape that you can bear it. He is telling you that that way of escape is clinging to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus clung to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can turn to Him for help and empowerment when faced with temptation. We are not destined to fail. We are empowered to succeed. Hebrews 12, or 2, verse 17 says, He had to be made like His brethren in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Friends, it would mean nothing for Jesus to be an empathic high priest if He didn't know what I was going through. That's the whole point. He did know and did understand what it was like to be a human being doing battle with the devil so he can come to my, my rescue. And he wants me to know that. I've walked in your shoes. I've been on your path. I've faced your trials. And I know what it's like. And you can come to me for help because I know how to win. John 5.30, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative because I do not seek my will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus declared that He did not act on His own. He always acted under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. How many times today have you already acted on your own? Or do you live in communion with the Lord in such a way that you are directed and guided by His Spirit? You hear that voice saying, don't do that. You ought to do this. And you say, yes, Lord. Or, okay, I won't, Lord. You follow that direction. That's the divine initiative operating within you. The more you listen to the voice of God, the more you pay attention to His Spirit, the more you will walk in the footsteps of Christ in obedience. Just as He walked. 
John 8.28 says, I, I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. You know, in my life, my experience is that the one thing that is certain to get me in trouble faster than anything else is running off at the mouth. My tongue becomes a problem. And, and it has been such a point of contention with me and, and uh, I have come to the Lord with such dependence that I would rather be guilty of not saying something when I should than to be guilty of saying something I shouldn't have. Because you can't take words back. Jesus said, I don't ever say anything I don't hear my father say first. I'm sure he had thoughts, but they did not come out his mouth. He only spoke what he heard the father say. He was completely obedient in all respects. You say, I can't live that way. Have you tried? Have you turned your mouth over to Him and asked Him to be Lord and Master of it? If you give Him a chance, He will prove something to you. And and you know what? Then the crux of the matter is, you have to make a decision. Oh, I want to say this so bad. Are you going to obey the Spirit or ignore Him? That's the crux. While Jesus the Messiah never surrendered His deity, He did leave it in heaven, so to speak. He did leave in heaven, so to speak, His divine attributes so that, one, He could retake the test of Adam and prevail as the second man and the last Adam. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5. Romans 5, For by one man sin entered the world, and death by that sin, so death has come upon all men, so also through one man the many were made righteous. The Bible doesn't just throw words around willy-nilly that don't have meaning. When it calls him the second Adam, or the second man and the last Adam, there's a reason for that. The first Adam messed up. The second Adam got it right. The first Adam, created by God in natural flesh, and indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit, was confronted with temptation and chose to say no to the voice of the Spirit. And we're in a mess because of it. The last Adam, in natural flesh, indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, faced the same temptation and said yes to God every time. So that when he went to the cross, he had never once failed. And as the second man, and we'll look at that a little more closely next week, 
But as the second man, he started a new race, a new creation of those who were born again by the Spirit. Number two, he could only be a meaningful and valid example of how we're to live if he lived in the power of the Spirit as a natural man. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, what does Paul say? Be imitators of God as beloved children. What? Be imitators of God? You've got to be kidding me. That's what he says. Because he's looking at Jesus and he says, Live like Jesus lived. Follow his example. If I were to take you downtown in front of the John Hancock building, I have a picture that I made where I stood at the base of it and leaned backward and took a photograph straight up of geometrical proportions. And I said to you, I want you to leap this tall building in a single bound. How likely are you to take me seriously? Would you even try? You'd say, Martin, you have lost it. You're crazy. I'm out of here. I don't even want to be next to you. (laughs) You're scary. If Jesus lived on this earth as God, and somebody comes along and says, imitate Jesus, do what He did, follow His example, live like Him, you would say, are you nuts? I can't do that. I'm just immortal. He's God. This is stupid. You're an idiot. I'm just going to fail all my life till I finally stumble into heaven. And Jesus is way out there so far beyond me that I can't even get near Him. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. Friends, Jesus is right here. He's walked in your shoes. He's lived this life in human flesh by the power of the Spirit. And the example that He left for us is meaningful because it is possible. Do not shortcut God or yourself by saying, I can never be like Jesus Because the Bible plainly says you ought to be. Now, I understand it takes growth. I get that. Daily surrender to His will more and more and more. I I get that. But you have the capacity and the power of the Holy Spirit to do today what God directs you to do. And He will lead you on a lifetime journey of looking more and more like Jesus as you go along. And finally, 
He could demonstrate the powerful reality of life and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, assuring us that we could do the same things He did, and even greater, because He was giving us the same Holy Spirit in same Holy Spirit indwelling and anointing power. John 14 is where He says, "I'm not going to leave you like orphans. You're going to do the same things I've done and greater things because I'm going to my Father." And I'm going to give you my same spirit. We look around us today and we don't see these mighty deeds and acts. And in the West, and in the rationalism of the Western world, we have a tendency to say, whatever it meant, it didn't mean that. But you go to third world countries where the gospel is advancing, and you will discover that they are living in the power of the Spirit doing the things Jesus did. Friends, the sick are healed. The lame walk. The dead have been raised. God tells them what they need to know. He guides them in the power of His Spirit because they believe Him and they trust Him. Our problem is not that it isn't possible, it's that we don't believe it's possible. That's our problem. And I admit it's, it's a tough one because the whole Western church is in trouble here. But nonetheless, Jesus modeled the Spirit-filled life for us. And then He offers it to us. By faith. So friends, this is what I want you to take away today. Do not put Jesus so far out there that you cannot get near Him. He has come here so that He could walk among us. And He has given His Spirit so that we could walk in His power. Don't let yourself off the hook by saying, I can't live like that. I'm not God. Or He didn't live like that either because He was God. He lived like that because He was a man filled and empowered with the Spirit. But take care that in thinking that, you do not take away His deity. There is a difference in giving it up and instead choosing not to use it, even though He owned it. We have to be careful that we keep our doctrine straight.